two little mice fell in a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he turned that cream into butter and crawled out. Gentlemen, as of this moment, I am that second mouse. It's amazing. He's talking about motorcycle insurance. Now let's start the show. Step back on the cold. Problems. Mm. Tell us the fuck. Ladies and gentlemen, the CO double MON synonym for fresh truth is the emblem. All right, folks, welcome back to the Second Mouse Podcast. This is a lifestyle podcast about the musings of the day, general commentary, and anything that you we feel you might need to know. We are an up-and-coming podcast, and we're trying to build our listener base. A few ways you can help us is by following our Instagram page at Second Mouse Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube under the same name, that's Second Mouse Podcast. We'll post show highlights, interesting videos, and some outtakes. Lastly, we talk a lot about different things on the show, but we want to hear from you and what is on your mind. So send us a direct message or any on any of these platforms and share articles, stories, or anything that you might find interesting, whether that's your asshole of the week or your pick of the week, we're interested. So let us know. Um, once again, my name is Tom, and I'm joined with Q and Gatto, and... We talked very much about some pretty heavy um, subjects last week with the invasion of Ukraine being relatively new. There are things that have been continuing to develop, but right now it seems that um, battle lines are being hardened and there's, there's, there's information that's coming out that's a little scattered just given the, the lack of true information from both sides. But we wanted to kind of scale out for this week and really talk about just like the origins of some political beliefs and where where some of the conclusions that we have have come to and where our thoughts and perspectives live related to our political philosophies. So Q, I want to start with you and then we'll move to you, Gatto. Like when do you remember your political beliefs being shaped and like, where did they come from? Uh, typically I, I would, you know, like most people, you're kind of influenced by your parents and my dad has been for his entire life, like a union type guy. So blue, blue collar union type guy. So, um, you know, they were big Clinton supporters and all that. So I still, I, yeah, I remember remnants of that being a child and, uh, obviously, the 90s were more ideal as far as the economy and everything else. Um, but I would say the big thing for me was probably Obama. And uh, I got wrapped up in that. And it was around the first time I was actually first eligible to vote. Um, and then, as you know, Tom, you and I have had <laughs> numerous uh, political, we'll call them discussions, uh, Long discussions years. at like <laughs> thirty in the morning. Angry, drunk political discussions. Um, because aside from you know being a huge Obama supporter, then became a disillusioned Democrat, and I guess you can call it libertarian. I guess they you know fell under certain parameters of of libertarianism. 
um, only to kind of shift back is to more of a, a leftist at this point. Um, so I, I guess I guess the way I would I would kind of categorize it is like a Bernie Sanders liberal, I guess. Um, whatever you want to kind of categorize that as. Yeah, you had a pretty uh, nice bro. you had a pretty nice tryst with the Libertarian Party for a while. It's almost a, a summer love affair. <laughs> it was it was it was probably about two or three years, and it was mainly because I think it was I it was look, you know, I think I think Barack Obama there was plenty of stuff that he was blocked on. Um he, he walked into a a, a uh, political gridlock in in Congress and and Senate, but there was also a lot of things that I felt like he could have done uh, that he didn't do, and uh, you know it was it, it's being a, being a young idyllic uh, person who all of a sudden sees a hero, I guess you can call it, or a person that you you want to succeed, and and you're you're seeing them kind of do the same things that everybody else does, and you feel like you're part of a, a moment, and then it's it kind of starts slipping away. So, yeah, it's it's pretty easy to kind of slip into something that's uh you know obviously not not ideal, uh but yeah, but libertarianism really started to it start it, it, I once I kind of got into the more like. I guess you can say tenets of the of the philosophy. I was like, this is not for me, and and found myself on more occasions disagreeing. It's, it was more of like a I agree with them on pot, and I thought I agree with them on economic matters. But the more you learn about stuff like that, I the less the less I agreed. So it's been a long road, but I I think I kind of feel more comfortable now than I ever have. Yeah, yeah, and. And Gatto, I want to shift that conversation to you. And same question, like when did those political beliefs start to be formalized and how have they either matured or shifted over the years? You know, when I think of this question, um, I kind of come to my personal feelings on the Second Amendment as a good way of explaining this one because I think – in the very beginning, um, I recall that we were, you know, we were we were going to, to school during that period of time in which uh, mass shootings were occurring more more and more frequently. Um, I think you know we were really we were really young when Columbine happened, but it had such a big impact, and then you would hear more of these, and I, I felt like. You know, seeing um, how the world was was working, how the system worked, I was very anti-gun in the beginning because of this, and um, I'm I, I've I laxed significantly as I've gotten older with this, right? And I, I I noticed that a lot of a lot of times, I think I personally for me, my politics can slide on a little bit of a spectrum. I uh, I I don't. I don't pretend to know the answers to a lot of things. I'm, I'm pretty fucking dumb. <laughs> so um, if something comes about that can change my mind, I'm, I'm willing to kind of embrace, embrace that. I see how something isn't working in our system. It will change my, my opinions on things. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of cut in for a sec. Cause uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting. Gato, you mentioned Columbine cause 
that was three days after my 11th birthday. And I, I remember distinctly because that was the first time I think we are very much a kind of product of that, of that moment. Um, and I think that was, I think we, I, I think people don't really put the emphasis on that as, as much as should, as far as like, you see the change in our generation, we, we are the first generation of a while that really kind of felt insecure about going to school. And I think that uh, when you mentioned guns, I've also kind of evolved on the second amendment. Um, I was, I was kind of, I was very anti-gun and I've, I've definitely kind of changed certain, certain things on my stance on the second amendment, but I, I agree with you. I think Columbine was, was a huge moment as far as kind of shaping a lot of my political beliefs as well. There's these standout moments that shine light on the current workings of society or how the system is at large, like Again, another thing that's changed is my belief in uh, the ec like economic policy from seeing years and years of like when I was younger and, and not really seeing how how things worked. Um, I had a totally different belief on um, taxes and, and things like that, and um, and now I, I see them totally different. Um, I, I, I find sometimes I'm, I have a more conservative view than I definitely had finding a place to call my, like, I don't really think that in our current system, we're allowed to have independence. <laughs> like, that was like a fashion, fashionable thing to call yourself. And most people want to, but I don't think that's possible anymore. Glad that you mentioned that because I was, I was listening to NPR this morning and they're talking about the North Carolina congressional races and senatorial races too, where a number of North Carolina residents are registered as independents, but ultimately the term independent is in name only or just on paper. And in many cases, people who claim to be independent are in their hearts like partisan to a particular political party, but they want the, the freedom to refer to themselves as independent, almost in the sense of like washing their hands of when one political party doesn't do what they're supposed to do. You could say like, well, I'm an independent, so I don't, that like, that's not my problem. But ultimately these folks use it as sort of a way to distance themselves from any kind of like political accountability or culpability if they buy into policies or practices that are ultimately unfair to a particular group or population or just flat out bad ideas. So I think we all want to claim that we're independents and ultimately we would like to have a kind of political structure where you can claim to be independent, but ultimately you're going to, you're going to land on issues with one side over another. Yeah. I've always felt like independents are just like politically lazy. Fair fans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, look, listen, if you, if, if that ultimately is, if you really are an independent, it means that you, you borrow from both parties. Um, that's fine. But I, fi I find that a majority of the independents I've ever spoken to are very, like you mentioned, very wishy-washy to the point where they don't want to be held responsible for the fault of uh, their party to where you can like I, when it comes to Democrats, I love talking about how Democrats suck uh, because 
I think I think it's good to be honest about the bad parts of the party that you ultimately end up voting for, mainly to try and try and change that perspective and hopefully maybe get people to stop voting for those type of politicians. Uh, but to where independents, I feel like they are like, oh, yeah, you, they get like you mentioned, Tom, they get to say like, oh, well, I don't I don't agree with that because I'm an independent. And it's like, well, you can't you can't you're riding the fence and, you know, you can only ride the fence so long before you get splinters in your asshole. So, I mean. Yeah, no, and I think that's a good point, too, where the the fair weather fandom of political ideology is kind of how we've gotten here in terms of, like, who we keep electing. Like, we, we seesaw very much in this country between, like, Republican and Democrat, conservative and progressive or liberal, and what ends up happening is... The party that's leaving power leaves. The party that comes into power reverses everything that the previous or the the previous party had. And then that party gets voted out. And then their successor comes in and changes everything again. So we end up just doing this like very, very long loop of starting in one place, doing a 180, and then coming right back around at a 360 where nothing ever really gets resolved. The can just gets kicked down the road. And one of the things that resonates with me so much is this debt ceiling crisis that comes up whenever it's politically convenient for one particular party or this deficit reduction component where one party says, well, we got to spend down the debt and we got to, you know, we need to reduce the amount of money that we owe to lenders. When when that party is out of power, they are very hawkish on debt reduction. And then when they get in power, it's spend, spend, spend. And it's obvious with you know the Republican Party with Trump, they were you know, they shut down the government a number of times because they wanted the debt ceiling to be resolved. And then when Trump gets in office, they pass a whole bunch of stuff and just blow the, the debt through the roof. And it's just, it's frustrating when the party that's out of power is promising something. And then when, once they get in power, the, the, the narrative completely shifts. Yeah. I think the term like uh fiscal conservative doesn't exist anymore. It's unless, you, unless you're, unless you're talking about like, a, you know, 55 year old guy who's a California Republican, but yeah, no, they, they don't exist in Congress. So because the new wave of conservatism is, um, is not, the tea party anymore which was more focused on taxes and debt reduction it's you know it's the very hawkish conservatives that ultimately they want to spend money but it's not spending money on the things that we want we want so you know to where i want money uh, directed more towards healthcare and infrastructure they want it on military military and pretty much more military um so yeah the the term fiscal conservative is 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 complete anomaly now but but yeah it it is pretty funny to me that like (laughs) trump ran up the deficit more than i think pretty much any other president he did and then the the minute biden got into office they were always like we got to get this debt down and it's like yep here we go again it's the same song and dance every single time but i'd argue that democrats also don't allocate funds very well either so it's uh this is this is unfortunately the 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 world we live in that it, it seems as though we can't really win either way there's so much polarization between both parties that they very rarely ever agree on things that actually move the needle and you know if you listen to anybody who goes on to like the sunday news or anything like that it's always like well we vote on a lot of things in congruence with each other like yeah you vote on like parliamentary shit that doesn't actually move the needle or like <laughs> you know you're you're disavowing like the patriots because they cheated in a super bowl like 
cool. <laughs> like more healthcare, please. It's frustrating that you hear like all of this bipartisanship about shit that truly doesn't matter, but things that can move the country in a direction towards like the future, we are so split on. And one of the things that frustrates me is this conversation around like inflation and the increase in oil prices. And I don't want to get too far off track, but this is a good way to describe it. Like there are components of both parties that are saying like, well, we need to be more sustainable for ourselves and utilize our own resources so we can have energy independence. But they're not clear on which way to do it when they know global warming is an actual problem or climate change is an actual problem. Like, I don't think the way that we become energy independent is by like poisoning all of our lakes so we don't have to buy oil from OPEC. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a point of contention uh, during the Democratic primary with Joe Biden um, that we were really like you know bernie sanders was was pretty heavy talking about fracking and joe biden what like obviously knowing he was going to need pennsylvania um and knowing he was going to need like you know the 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 virginia area that he pretty much he refused to uh commit to not issuing any new fraction uh fracking uh, uh bills if if ultimately he became president and he's living up to that promise uh so it seems like the Demo you know even the democratic party is so way behind on even things like uh clean energy and everything like that so but tom we kind of got sidetracked for a second and you didn't we didn't get to do you as far as what shapes your political beliefs um and what got your kind of history as far as that goes so uh yeah so i think i think that my political journey is an interesting one in that when i was younger i remember watching the presidential debate between Al Gore and George Bush and wanting George Bush to win. Myself identifying as a Republican young at a young age, and I think my parents did as well, and it wasn't until I got to college that, you know, eight years of George Bush was not as cool as it sounded. You know, I, I, I voted for Barack Obama in the 2008 election, and I, I think I was just looking for something different from a political perspective because the both wars in Iraq and Afghanistan had, had gone on much longer than they needed to, and the country did not seem to be in a better place than it was in 2000 or 1999. And, you know, I think there was a, a time, too, where I was like, well, what about libertarianism? Is that something worth looking at? And then it it just wasn't. And um, I think there was just too much volatility with the folks that were in there. And I really learned that when I was student teaching, talking to students about economics and hearing some of their perspectives and them utilizing like libertarian philosophy to like rationalize things. I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like they, people who are hardcore libertarians don't even think you should have a fire department. Like they think they should be privatized. Like your house is burning down and you need an Amex card to make it work. <laughs> It's, it's so funny you said that because like that was the I think that was a sticking point for me because I I'd, I'd watched uh, there's a show uh, I think I mentioned before the majority report uh, Sam Cedar on YouTube it's a good political show if you're if you're interested in something like that if you're bored by it I'd still give it a try because you never know I, he he was having a debate with uh, a man named Daryl Perry 
Uh, if you don't know who Daryl Perry is, he was a uh, libertarian presidential candidate. And let's just say he is a interesting person. During the libertarian presidential debate, they were asked the question of, do you think that you should have to get a license to drive your car? To where Gary Johnson, who ended up being the nominee for the libertarians, gave the very honest answer of like, yeah, I'd like to see some proficiency. He got booed very heavily by the crowd there, which Naturally. did not make me did not make me feel great. And Daryl Perry used the uh, very common metaphor of what's next? Do I have to get a license to put toast in my toaster? He also is he's just a very strange person. He was on that show debating Sam. He was talking about basically ripping down any local government infrastructure. So Sam asked him the question of like, okay, in this scenario, how do I prove I own property? And of course, Daryl, you know, he started getting angry and basically the tenant of the argument was, Sam was saying, how can I, like, if we get rid of local government agencies, right? I have a deed and that deed is backed by the government right yeah who ultimately backs up my deed if there's no local government because then it's going to be privatized which ultimately if you're rich enough you could probably start your own deed company and i have three deeds and you have one so now your land is mine who ultimately protects you in that scenario um that was his kind of his argument of like ultimately how do you prove anything if there's no infrastructure of a local government and ultimately a police force as well. Like you said, fire department, things of that nature. We pay for these things uh, through our taxes so that if we have a prowler trying to break into our home and we call the police, they go, well, you want to use uh, your Amex or your Discover? Which one did you want to use today? You we PayPal, PayPal we, now. We're, we're accepting PayPal now. Apple, Apple Pay. Do you your have an FTX account for your Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, your house is on fire, and they're like, uh, listen, you didn't pay last month, so we're going to need uh, – just we're, it's just going to be a pending charge until we figure out the damages. So that was a moment in which and – and, and thankfully to YouTube's algorithm, I was actually kind of hate-watching him, and this guy's a fucking asshole. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I watched – I kept watching, and I kept watching, and I kept watching, and then all of a sudden, that moment was kind of big for me because I, I already thought Daryl – Perry was a kook, uh, just an honest opinion. But like, I, I I wasn't of the left like he was, and that was a moment of like, shit. I don't have an answer to that argument. And you realize that I think a lot of people in the libertarian movement um, ultimately have bad intentions. And I, that's you can say that of any party. But um, that that was a kind of like a watershed moment. For me. So. Yeah. And and I would say too, I think a lot of my political a uh, political beliefs and ideologies have really been sharpened and honed in the last probably eight years. Where I went to grad school, and then I worked on three different college campuses, and that provided me with the opportunity to actually meet and connect with people that did not have the same background as I did, did not have the same belief structure that I did. And ultimately had perspectives that I had never experienced in my life. Because ultimately, my undergraduate experience was pretty homogeneous. A lot of folks that looked like me, that had the same upbringing as I did, who grew up in the same places that I did. So it was hard to get a new kind of worldview and perspective until I left kind of that comfort zone and heard from them. And ultimately, I think my 
approach now to politics is less like liberal, conservative, progressive, anything you want to call it. It's more just like realist. Like what can we actually do to solve some of these issues now? Because I'm not the first person to say this. I think the fringe ideas of both parties have co-opted the philosophies of both the Democratic Party and the, the GOP, where they are now pretty much placated to either the QAnon crowd or anybody on Twitter with an opinion. And it's frustrating in that we have spilled this social media battle over into the, ch- the halls of Congress where we're electing people because of their takes rather than their actual solutions to problems. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene is a great example of somebody who does not sit on any committees and is somebody who in regular circles of the world is a fringe actor, but she's essentially become a kingmaker within the GOP where she's allowed to say what she wants and candidates for congressional races are looking for her endorsement, but she hasn't done shit in her role. But it doesn't matter because she's got a big following. She's a presence. She's the anti-AOC, except she doesn't do See, anything. Her, her, her crowd doesn't care about any of that. As long as she, quote-unquote, owns the libs, that's all they, they really give a shit about. Did you, see, did you see that she went to Nick Fuentes' fucking... And she didn't uh, know that it was a neo-Nazi rally? <laughs> what an idiot. You're mentioning here is, like, political absolutes. Um, and yes. I think the three of us were... We have moderate mindsets on a lot of things because we see that there's a lot of gray and there's not a perfect answer out there at all. And for us to get behind any of these people just seems kind of ludicrous because like they are, are in this state of like ultimate sureness on. You're you're right. There's no, there's no um, ambiguity anymore. Everyone is convinced that they have the answers now. And um, and if you don't, if you, and if it's wrong, you'll just find some article written by somebody to, you know, essentially, yeah, exactly. We, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. We live in the age of confirmation bias. And it's interesting that we talk about this because Alexander Hamilton has a quote attributed to him that the masses are asses. And he was very much somebody who did not believe that the people should have absolute authority over the way that the country and the government is ran because he also lived in a time where a vast majority of the new United States was not educated and few people knew how to read. And it was, he had concerns like, how much sway do we want the common person to have over the way that this country runs? And I feel like we are in a time right now where that quote means a lot more because we've had people vote for candidates who really don't have any platform other than what you said, Q, like it's strictly just to own the libs or to get like 10,000 likes on that don't actually do anything like Madison Cawthorn doesn't do anything and Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't do anything. Lauren Boebert doesn't do anything. A lot of these folks do not sit on congressional committees and don't have any political sway, but they have social media and soft influence. And like, is that what our government has been reduced to is reshare this so I can get 10,000 likes? It's a lot of retweet if you if you share the same opinion. And it's yeah. like, it's, it's, it's just for the fucking the twitter or instagram engagement 
Uh, by the way, Newsweek is reporting that Marjorie Taylor Greene, after um, before she criticized the war, she apparently bought anywhere from a thousand to fifteen thousand dollars in Lockheed Martin stock. And by the way, Lockheed Martin manufactures the Javelin anti-tank missiles with defense contractor Raytheon. So that's new. That's a Newsweek article um, is alleging. So yeah, um, I, I think that's a, a good way of putting it. Is that ultimately like. I, I I look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and she's just a she's just an actress. She's just playing a part. Politics are inconsequential to the they're, they're celebrity failed. that being yeah. in that arena creates for her. They're failed influencers. They're failed wine mom influencers who are like you know failed gym bro influencers who are like, well, I guess I'll just run for fucking political office then. And it's easy to do because they all they have to do is just follow the talking points from their insane fans, and it's they'll vote for them in in lockstep. And and to be fair, that's that could be attributed to both sides of the aisle. Hundred percent. Because 100%. for every Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's an individual who has incredibly extreme viewpoints where basically dissolve any form of work or anything in that relation and it's like okay but at some point like where is this money coming from like how are we paying for this now i know that that's been used typically when we're trying to talk about healthcare. but as soon as we need to buy like 400 f-35s like we somehow look under all the couches and we find like three billion dollars laying around and i'm i'm not ignoring that but at some point we do have to be realistic that we need to find some common ground of like what works versus what is aspirational and i would prefer people be a little bit more honest when they're giving their speeches instead of giving these grand gestures when it's like yeah but you still only have like 49 senators and you need 51 in order to pass fucking anything in the senate and ultimately that's the biggest roadblock we vote for people that are supposed to represent us. So do these people actually represent us? North Carolina is a great example of that because they've been going back and forth for the last three years on the congressional and senatorial districts that they can't seem to figure out. And they keep redrawing all the maps because they keep going to court over them because one party draws maps that are favorable to them while the other one draws maps that are favorable to them. And then they have to hire like independent people to draw maps and then those go to court and then they get appealed and then they get a stay on that. And if you're ever interested in like weird like interaction between liberal philosophies and like hyper conservatism, follow North Carolina politics. It's fascinating in that it's this old It's old South versus new South. And you have this influx of people that have come in from the North and you still have this state that has very much still living in the past. In many cases, you have very blue cities and very red counties that surround it. So it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating case study on what happens when you have strong, strong political opinions on both sides and they're both fighting for power it bleeds into everything from like county elections, city elections, board of trustees for universities. It's it's been I've lived here since 2018 and it's been fascinating to watch a state that's literally fighting itself to have any kind of identity as it comes to like what they're going to do for the rest of for, for the future. Yeah, the uh, Supreme Court actually um 
knock down a request from the Republicans in uh, North Carolina to stop the map from going through. So, yeah, I think that just happened today or Mm -hmm. yesterday. Mm -hmm. But it's again, they've been going back and forth on this. The primary was supposed to be today. And then that got postponed because they didn't have maps figured out. All very, very interesting things. And the the gerrymandering that happens in the state is insane. There is a there's a university in Greensboro where I used to live, North Carolina A and T, where the 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 congressional district literally stops midway through North Carolina A and T, so they can't get their students to vote for a Democratic candidate. You know that's that's the funny thing is um. We talk about our political belief systems, but certain things like a winner-take-all system, I don't like. The one thing that came out of all this horseshit with Trump in the last election, presidential election, was that there are grievances with the system that we definitely need to work on or fix. It's not a perfect system. Well, we, we always call it, we give the excuse, this is tradition, this is how we've always done it. It's a terrible reason to do anything. Traditions are other people are dead people's baggage, as far as I'm concerned. I I find the whole ceremonious thing to be ridiculous. But I, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I get real poetic when I'm talking about politics. Yeah, and and speaking, you know, we were talking about gerrymandering, Tom. Um, it's so funny is that one of my favorite things that I remember from Twitter was Dan Crenshaw. If you if you guys are familiar with Dan Crenshaw. Um, if you ever Google Dan Crenshaw's uh, district, it is the funniest shit you've ever seen because it just goes to show how fucked up gerrymandering is. It is literally like a like a hook and it it covers certain surface areas and like just keeps zigzagging. And for a guy like him who, you know, keeps talk, talking about how he's been elected, you know, by, by the people like a high yeah by the people by a high majority and it's like yeah you've been elected because of gerrymandering and i would argue the same thing with like marjorie taylor green the reason why these people continue and that's one i think one of the most destructive political forces we've seen is gerrymandering because it allows certain districts to ultimately just become like fortresses for political parties and i think if you were to remove that and just keep it you know like Keep it, keep it like solid areas. You would see um, a a massive shift, but squares and rectangles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that being said, how do you, how do the both of you feel about term limits for congressional seats? I'm for it. I think that it brings a level of honesty back to Congress because it's going to unincentivize uh, career politicians. And that's one of the biggest things that has caused stagnation in our current system. Yeah, yeah that's what I, I got to say about that. I, I think if I think if if you if you go back to the inception of this country, I don't think they ever intended on people making careers out of being politicians. It was a it was a duty of service, you know. Do people didn't live that long? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's actually a good point. You see the absolute disgust of politicians when you bring up term limits because they don't they don't want it. They want to be able to um, ultimately, you know, stick in Congress and Senate and and make that. uh, I I mean, what does anybody know the average salary of what they what they make a year? I think it's two hundred fifty thousand. 
Yeah, I figured it had to be six figures. It is senators and house representatives make $174,000. It's a a nice living. And that's not even to mention book deals. I think there should be, I think 12 years is probably, um, I think 12 years is probably a good amount of time. I, I just, I can't wrap my head around the fact that you see these guys like, I mean, even like John McCain, that guy was in, I mean, the 80s, you had, I think it was around the 80s he came in, and, like, not until he passed away was, like, when the seat opened up. And this is how you get these guys. I think, Gato, you made a great point about career politicians, ultimately, because I think if you are not completely just focused on getting elected every single time, you will ultimately push for the things that you think will, you know, make people's lives better. I think, I think it narrows your focus down, but also I, I, I think people should be able to go for higher office still. Like I, if you max out in Congress, I still think you should be able to, uh, you know, run for president or something like that. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where, and also I think it's going to eliminate some, some of I, I, and I don't, I'm not an ageist at all, but I think we have, our elected officials are way too old. I want to see a Wonderlick test <laughs> for politicians. Dude, <laughs> uh, dude, I'm telling you, man, because like there is there is a great moment. I'll have to look it up who the politician was. I think he was a Democrat too, which is like it, it was a very Republican thing. There was a, there was a uh, senator. I think it was Richard Burr. So I'm gonna challenge both of you on the term limits thing because I'm skeptical about it. And the reason why I am is because there are states at the state level that have term limits for their politicians. And there was somebody actually who works in the political science department of Western Carolina that did a study on term limits. And what he found was the states that have term limits were more reliant on political lobbyists who were former politicians than they were reliant on the actual elected politicians. Because what ends up happening is the folks that are elected, they don't have the same political understanding of how the system works and the relationships with people and what ends up happening is they call upon former legislatures, like state senators, to advise them and guide them on things. And ultimately, those folks serve as lobbyists. And I think in North Carolina, you need to be out of politics for five years in order to serve as a lobbyist. Some places, it's, a, it's shorter than that. Those folks are end up being the ones that are steering a lot of the decisions that are being made. So ultimately the term limits don't matter because the people that are in office at the moment are relying on the people that have termed out. Thus we're having the same problems and the media also relies on them as well for political perspective. And it doesn't really move the needle for anything. They just kind of stay in the same kind of pattern that we're in now i feel like that's a very interesting conclusion that's a very cool study and i would like to say that what i'm also hearing is that there there's more receptiveness by by candidates under term limits to constituents or interest groups lobbies have political agendas um but there's ones that advocate for things that we could probably use or that could be good you know or are at the interests of people and that kind of seems that in this case, yes, because 
what essentially I think is happening is most people in politics are getting in there for a career still. I, I, I believe that this is because we live in a capitalist system. Um, it, they're trying to amass money while they're doing this. And well, if you have term limits, it's going to be a fast cash and grab, right? So you're going to want to get the deals, work with the lobbies to make the money as fast as you can because you have a short amount of time, right? Because essentially capitalism is the underlying force that incentivizes people's decisions or actions in, in this type of democracy. Yes. So, Tom, if you think that we banned lobbyists uh, from having um, interactions with uh, elected officials, do you think that you would change your mind on term limits? I think I would change my mind. However, I am skeptical of how do you enforce that, right? Like, how do you manage that? Because ultimately, we should never create laws that we can't enforce. And we should never create policies that are just in name only. And they have no way to ensure that they're being followed. Now, Well, there was, there was actually a weird moment in which AOC and Ted Cruz came together and actually both agreed that there has to be more clarity on public financing and ultimately revealing ultimately who you are taking money from. I think AOC believes that. I think Ted Cruz said it because it'll never happen. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure that is a part of it because again, putting your money where your mouth is ultimately is not a thing that you know, guy like Ted Cruz is willing to do. So I wanted to pull back because I looked at that moment and it, there's a really funny moment. If you ever want to look it up, um, Senator Richard Blumenthal from uh, Connecticut, he's a Democrat. He was, uh, <laughs> this is, this is my issue with, so we're, we're being led. He is 75 years old. And again, I'm not an ageist, um, but I, I have serious concerns about the advanced ages of some of our senators and our, our um, congressional members. He was um, talking to Facebook's safety chief. Oh, yeah, I remember this. <laughs> yeah. And he kept asking um, he kept asking this person, "Will you commit to ending Finsta?" And if you don't know what Finsta is, it's a it's just a like a nickname for fake Insta. So essentially, if you ha- are followed, but you like you have an Instagram account, if you have, or if you're followed by your parents, or if you're followed by your family members, and there's some things that you don't want to post that they're gonna see. Some people have a Finsta, which is basically a second account. That's all it is. There's no delineate. There's there's no difference in how the account is created. There's no difference in the account itself other than it's probably private and you're only going to allow people that you want to see the things are, are going to be able to uh, get access to it. And he just kept asking this person, will you commit to ending Finsta? And it just goes, it's more of a, an idea. Like you see the look in her face of like, you know, Senator, there's, since there's not a thing, it's a nickname and it's like, there's no difference in how it's created. And, and you see his like anger in his face of like, listen, I don't want to hear any of that malarkey. Like, are you going to end Finsta? I, it, it shows a disconnect that this is like the cybersecurity 
panel or something that like it's full of people who don't even know what they're talking about. Yeah, you and need that's... people that are more more advanced in these areas. Um, but I mean, that's also a different conversation as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking. I'm on Wikipedia right now, and I'm looking at the longest serving members of both the House and Senate. And you have John Dingle, who served for 59 years. Um, Insane. Robert Byrd, who served for 57. The longest serving living person has been in um, the House for 49 years and three days. Who is that? Uh, Don Young from Alaska. Uh, Patrick Leahy is the second. Um, he's been in Congress for 47 years. Oh my God. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I am not somebody who thinks that like youth brings like intelligence or understanding. I think doing anything for 47 years is a problem. Doing anything for 49 years or 59 years is at a certain point, like who are you now serving? And it kind of alludes back to the fact like the, the primary role of a politician is to get elected. The secondary role of a politician is to get reelected. And a lot of this rings true. And it's just like, we have a lot of people that, you know, have seen generations come and go and they're still in office. And you have to wonder, like, like, who are you? Who is this for? Is this for us? Is this for you? Because at this point, like, you've made all your money. And like, I'm looking at some of these states and nothing has changed in them. When you mentioned those names in Congress for years and years, and I've never heard of a single one of them. And a lot of the people who serve as presidential candidates, they are in Congress or in the Senate for a remarkably shorter period of time outside of Joe Biden. That they're actually like rising stars and they can be somebody that changes the narrative or excites a base or brings the country together. But I mean, I'm looking at some of these names like Orrin Hatch, 42 years, Carl Hayden, 41, Chuck Grassley, 41, who's still in Congress. You're going to have older people because it's reflective of the fact that old people vote more than younger people. Yeah. But I I would also argue, too, like the longer that you're in, the more wealth you accumulate because the more people you get in touch with and the more donors you have that are not just like the mom and pop $5 donors, but it's the folks that are saying like hey we're gonna we're gonna give you some money if you vote for this bill you know why guys like mitch mcconnell and others are able to stay in congress he's been in congress or he's been in the senate for 37 years you know why he's been there because he's been able to work his way into um some political groups and through some lobbyists that have been willing to take care of him financially and politically so he can remain in office. Well, we've been, we've been talking a lot about Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I hate to break it to people. She's going to be in Congress for a long time. She she won her district by 75% roughly. Um, so, you know, and that's, uh, you know, you can blame it on gerrymandering and all those other things, but like the Warren Boberts and the Madison Cawthorn are not going anywhere, and that's why. Madison Cawthorn might though, because his district got dissolved. That's that's true. Yeah. Um, God, what a fucking idiot he is. Um, that's that's ultimately ultimately why I I think I also support term limits. Um, because I just I I don't want these people. I don't. 
I think I think it's cyclical, and like I think sometimes you'll see the the maybe the fever pitch kind of break eventually, and you may see the less extreme candidates um, start to dissipate. But the problem is a lot of these extreme candidates they will kind of temper over time. I don't want somebody like her or Cawthorn to you know be sticking around twenty years later. So that's just my my take on it. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, so we are going to wrap up this episode of the Second Mouse Podcast. We hope that a little bit of a change in the conversation um, provides some a different perspective on how our political beliefs and philosophies have kind of come to fruition, as well as um, kind of a deep dive in some of the, the political topics that we're most interested in. I would encourage, and I think we would all encourage you to do your own um, fact finding. I didn't want to say do your own research. <laughs> um, do your own <laughs> fact finding. <laughs> do your own fact finding about a lot of the political candidates that you're just um, you're interested in voting for or would like to learn more about. But ultimately, I think it's important that we keep a balanced approach to our expectations, both of our politicians, but also how we engage in political discourse, because ultimately where we are right now, it's, it's only leading to continued political division. The media doesn't help. Social media doesn't help, but we can, we can find a way to find that common ground. If we understand the concerns of one party and ways that issues can be resolved with both viewpoints. So um, all that being said, this show would not be possible without listeners like you. So give us um, a a great review on Apple podcasts or Spotify uh, or all, or any of your favorite streaming platforms and share this episode with your friends. Lastly, do us a favor and follow the Second Mouse Podcast and all your social media accounts. Just search Second Mouse Podcast and give us a like and a follow. We normally share some pretty funny content, so why not follow a page that's going to give you a laugh as you're sitting through another Zoom meeting, which might be ending soon. Um, So we are sorry that you have to work in your office again because we know we all hated that shit. Um, Thank you all so much. (laughs) No, go ahead. I just wanted to toss in there. Um, if you guys, if if anybody listening uh, wants to share their uh, their political journey as well, uh, please feel free to, because uh, I'm always interested in that. So we'd like to hear back from anybody who is listening. Uh, ultimately, where they kind of stand at the moment, and kind of get a gauge of uh, where where anybody who listens to this uh, kind of stands. Absolutely. All right, folks. We'll see you later. Okay, let's get me a rhythm. Then he says, and I'm not kidding, he goes, now clap. Please clap. Just clap for that, you stupid bastard. I need applause to live. Ha! Suck it, Jack Sparrow! (laughs) Bye.